You're listening to the Unframe of Mind show, the place to have the most mind-stretching, unprotected intellectual intercourse of your life. Your hosts Daniel Wagner and Lee Mollendorf battle the forces of evil by lobbing fiery balls of truth, reason, and evidence over safe room walls. All right, y'all. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Unframe of Mind show. Today, I've got a special guest, Mr. Jim Mosquera. He's actually the author of a number of fictional books that, uh, as you might be able to tell from our conversation upcoming, that they may not, may or may not be so fictional one day. So, uh, Jim, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Daniel, thanks for having me on today. Hey, not a problem. Um, if you could just uh, kind of introduce yourself to the audience and tell, tell us a little bit about who you are and, and, and give us maybe a, a brief uh, synopsis of these books here that you got um, that you're working on right now. Sure. Uh, my name is Jim Mascara. I am originally from uh, the Isthmus of Panama, where uh, the Panama Canal resides. A lot of people know where that is. Uh, came to the United States uh, many, many years ago and um, pretty much grew up in the United States. Uh, but one thing that a lot of people don't know about me is that English is not or was not, I should say, my first language. Spanish was actually my first language. So the first time I heard English, it was kind of kind of freaky to hear somebody saying, you know, hi and hello and some other things like that to you. But oh, wow. uh, <laughs> I would never I would never have guessed. <laughs> uh, professionally, I, uh, I have a couple of degrees in industrial engineering, and then my professional career took me in the telecommunications world, data networking, that kind of stuff, uh, things that you would associate with the internet and, and communication, that kind of thing. Uh, after that, I got into and, and presently in helping small businesses with financing if they aren't able to obtain financing from co the commercial banking establishments and also with debt restructuring. So after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, the banking industry in this country changed forever, right. and Congress and, and, and other institutions applied regulations to the banking industry and intentionally, you know, intentionally to protect obviously consumers and others. But the unintended, the unintended consequence of that is has affected small businesses who are unable to obtain capital the same way. So a niche industry sort of developed after that to uh, to cater towards the small business entity. Um, I started uh, a few years ago to write a financial newsletter because I started seeing some of the things that were going on post financial crisis and did that for a little while. Uh, published uh, a couple of books, in, one in 2011 and then another one in 2015, that talked about the financial crisis, the economy, uh, some things that people needed to do to protect their investments uh, because the, the bubble that had popped temporarily in 2008 more or less got reflated again. And so I don't think that a lot of people really recognize that. So I, I talked a lot about that. Uh, last year, I published my first of a, of a nonfiction series under the character name of Chandler Scott. He's my, my hero, my protagonist. And as you were mentioning in the intro, that series is really, really interesting to me because I, I took it out a few years into the future, uh, made the three books very, very realistic. The reader commentary, I, I think that's most common thing that you'll probably see in, uh, in reviews is how highly realistic it is. And to your point, it may be that at some point, some of these things that I characterize as fictional in the books uh, will not be. And um, the, the three books are characterized by politics, financial crisis, and cyber terror, which are things that we've, we've kind of 
we've had some taste of that uh, over the course of the last few years. I, I suspect we're going to see more of that. Obviously, the politics is really hot and heavy right now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and so these are themes that in a few years, I think, will become more intense and people will pay more attention to them. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to get the book series out now ahead of all that. Uh, to kind of it, the the books, I mean, they they entertain for sure, but secondarily, I wanted to um, tell a story, if you will, and and send some some messages throughout uh, throughout some of the characters. And some of the people that have read it have said, "Hey, you know, you've kind of made these points w- through these characters." I said, "Well, if you if you got that out of the books, then then you certainly got uh, some of my intentions." So, is it safe to say that it's modeled after, say, like a, or not necessarily modeled after, but it's similar to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, where there's a it's a number of messages that are being put forward, a number of arguments are being put forward, but it's in a fictional context. Is that pretty fair? I'll, yeah, I'll send you the check for $50 here a little bit later. That Yeah, great, <laughs> great, great setup. Uh, I, I don't I don't reveal that to, to people when I talk to them. And it, it's really, I, and I don't, don't want to say like I'm Ayn Rand, but as you mentioned with Atlas Shrugged, and if people read, you know, Atlas Shrugged or The Fountainhead, uh, she transmits messages through, through some of the characters in the storyline. I've done the same thing. Perhaps more subtly, I don't know. Maybe less subtly, uh, but you're absolutely, you're, but you're absolutely right. There, there are some very pointed themes that are made in the books. Okay, that that sounds fantastic. Um, one of the, one of the specific topics I was uh, curious about, especially with your um, experience in finances and that kind of thing. Um, see, one one of the things I, I like to, I don't really like to, but one of the things that I'm noticing is. Um, we, we tend to be moving toward a financial collapse, um, specifically of the U.S. dollar, I believe. And I think uh, there's been a number, of act, a, a number of things that have been going on lately to try to uh, kick the can down the road and kind of prevent it from happening. And, and it's one of those things that the longer we wait to uh, address the issue, the worse it becomes, much like a, a heroin addict that's just constantly being injected with drug. It becomes incredibly difficult to get off. Is that something that you see us heading toward in our current state, or do you do you feel like maybe there's still some time or some hope? And what can we do to the thi- fix it? <laughs> yes, the, the the thing about crises, um, and I, I I pattern the the flow and effect of crises in my three books of how crises actually evolve because crises tend to evolve very slowly at first, and then they occur suddenly, and then when the crisis is occurring, people are kind of surprised that the crisis is actually occurring, but I, I liken it to, you know, if you look at, um, you're looking at a mountain and on the side of the mountain, you see the snow accumulating. Now you don't know which snowflake is going to eventually cause that avalanche right now. And they tell you, well, you know, you might not want to ski in this area because there's an avalanche danger. Now you may ski in that area today and nothing will happen to you tomorrow. The same thing could happen. And so the setup is exactly as you, as you talked about is that the, the can's been kicked down the road. So the, the, the snow it's packing on the side of the hill is just getting bigger and bigger. Which particular snowflake is the one that's going to cause to, you know, initiate the avalanche? I have no idea. And, and neither does anyone else. And those, that, that avalanche will be caused when there is a loss of confidence. And that's something that I talk about in my nonfiction books. Uh, I, I have like four economic laws that I postulated, you know, Jim's economic laws. And the first one is, <laughs> Good is, Lord, cre- Jim, is, is there that- anything you don't do? <laughs> <laughs> well, and the first one is, is that credit equals confidence. And you, you can't, you don't issue credit unless the, the, the creditor is willing to lend and the borrower is willing to borrow. And that equation has worked pretty darn well 
it, it experienced a major shock in 2008. There was a recovery from that. But a lot of those same things still exist. And I'm glad you mentioned the thing about the dollar because our problem is, is not necessarily say, well, the dollar is doomed to failure and so forth. Because my argument that I use when people when people cast aspersions against the dollar and the dollar per se is, okay, well, what other currency in the world would you rather have? Or what other currency in the world is better? And the answer is there is no other currency in the world that's better. Now, that doesn't mean that the dollar right. is not without all kinds of flaws. And on my nonfiction books, the very, very first chapter, I mean, the very first thing that I talk to you about as a reader is money. And we have such a flawed, defective currency unit that we call the dollar that it causes a whole host of ills that I that I outline in in my books. Uh, I kind of mention those uh, tangentially in in the in the fictional books. So, but let me let me interrupt until you, there. you until you yeah. Um, so let me make sure I understand this correctly. As far as the fiat currency that we are currently using, um, it's it's uh, probably less money and more of a a loan or a credit. Is that well, I mean, Fair if you look say. at a dollar, a, a dollar that you have in your pocket, those green pieces of paper, right. they're they're nothing more than than debt. And if you look at, if you pull it out, and it says, you know, this this this, I think it says, I have to re read what it says. It's it's it says um, this note. I'm sorry, is legal tender for all debts, public and private, and that's a Federal Reserve creation. And if you look at what a dollar meant over time, and I talk about this in my nonfiction books, the, the, the definition of a dollar changed. And that's where the, that defect comes in. And, and that's, this is a very, very sneaky sleight of hand, insidious sleight of hand that most people don't realize. And, it, and again, as I mentioned, it causes a whole host of ills. And, but it, by the same token, it allows governments to not really pay, have that same discipline for their fiscal spending. And when I say governments, I don't just mean the U.S. government. I mean all governments. Oh, absolutely. It's it's kind of, I mean, it comes with the territory anymore. Right. And, but, but, the, but the, what the U.S. government and what the U.S. population has as its benefit in terms of the fiat currency world is that in 1945, after the end of World War II, all of the victorious countries, I guess, and non-victorious countries got together and they decided, hey, we need to have an international currency standard, and it was called the Bretton Woods Agreement, which said, okay, um, that everything's going to be relative to the dollar in, in fixed terms, but here's the linchpin of the agreement, is that the dollar then is equivalent to X amount of gold. Well, that worked really well for about a quarter of a century from 1945 until 1971. 1971 and, yep. <laughs> and, and as I as I mentioned in my, my nonfiction books, that's when Tricky Dick Nixon did what I think was the most impactful thing of his his presidency presidency, and it had nothing to do with Watergate. You know, he decided unilaterally, okay, I'm going to sever the United States from the Bretton Woods Agreement, so no longer will foreign governments be able to show up at the Treasury and hand us dollars and we hand them gold. Well, since that time, currencies have floated against one another, and and I can actually show you, I've, I've showed with charts that. There are so many things that change from an economic perspective after that point in time. And, and so 71 is a, is a very important point for me. 1982 is, is what I call the start of the great uh, credit ride that we've had in our economies. 
And so, so in a long story short, uh, what you mentioned in terms of having the dollars, the fiat currency, it is a fiat currency. It's the best of the fiat currencies, but all fiat currencies at some point, fiat, the, the lifespan of fiat currencies historically is not good. And it's still based on the confidence that it is still worth something. And once people lose that confidence, then what happens? I, I imagine that would be, like you said, that moment when it happens very quickly. <laughs> where it-, it, it, it happens very quickly. And in 2008, what you saw was a lot of people, you know, a lot of banks and, and larger financial institutions realized that there was a problem. And so then everybody heads towards the exit at, at the same time and they demand cash. And right now, cash, particularly in recession and depressionary periods, cash is king. Um, and so that's one of the things I talk about in the books is as you as we move more closer and closer to this point in time, which I think we're in anyway, it's really, really important to have cash because during these during these periods where the, the confidence is gone, which means the credit is gone, everybody heads towards the exit, people want to get paid. Well, what they get paid with is they want cash, right? They don't want more credit. They want cash. Sure, sure. Now, now what, what's sad is it sounds like you're incredibly well-educated on this subject and I'd like to consider myself relatively well educated on a number of, of aspects as far as how the U.S. dollar actually operates and works. Um, and what really saddens me is the degree to which most people don't even understand. They, they, they do understand I've got a dollar and this dollar represents a dollar worth of value and I trade it, you know, just, just the real basic trade back and forth aspect of it. But as far as the past history and how it actually operates in the background. I, it, it's uh, a little scary that people don't don't seem to understand how that actually works. And I think if people did, it would. I think that you may end up seeing a, a total loss in confidence of the U.S. dollar. Well, and 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 that's what I tried to do, Daniel, with with my fictional series. Is every once in a while you'll have an injection of one of the character, the the character, the main character. The he's he's a journalist, but he has these mentors that he interacts with, and the mentors, you know, are smart people, and they imbue him with knowledge about different financial things because he's a financial journalist, you know, and he talk so he he covers politics and in financial matters, and so his his mentor, his prime mentor, uh, along the way, you see him kind of educating about certain things. So. In, in the very first book, for some people, they'll think, and, it, and it's a fair criticism that maybe the first half of the book doesn't move as fast as it can. And that's actually by design <laughs> because I wanted to transmit, like you just said, certain types of information. So while people are being entertained with the story, they realize, oh, I didn't know that. Right. And then they can kind of continue on. Okay. So, so is your journalist more of a, a modern day mainstream media type journalist or is this one an actual honest, you know, <laughs> non-partial journalist? <laughs> he actually um, would fall more into the latter category because uh, in, in the first book, he's working for a large international uh, news network that's based out of Argentina. So it's not based out of the United States. So their take on things is a little bit different, right? They're not they're, they're not as beholden to American politics because they're not they're not based in the United States. Um, over the course of the three books, in, in the second book, he works as an independent journalist working on a documentary with another journalist. And then in the last book, he actually is approached by uh, an organization that I created called Veritas, you know, which is, is Latin, I guess, for truth. truth right. And, <laughs> and so, so he goes to work for this organization, again, as an independent journalist. And, and so there, there yet is another message that's being transmitted throughout the three books is his 
evolution, if you will, as a journalist, as he gets more and more, uh, you know, gets away from the mainstream and gets more and more independent. That's that's awesome. <clears throat> so I guess my next question would be, um, see, I had actually called up my um, 401k provider and just tried to start asking questions about, you know, okay, so assuming a, a collapse of the U.S. dollar, is there anything I can do to kind of hedge against that? Is there any kind of funds that we can move money into or anything like that to kind of act as a hedge against it? You know, something that would go up as the U.S. dollar went down to protect me. And they kind of almost answered me like they had no idea what in the world I was even talking about. Like I was talking crazy. And, and I don't know if that's because they genuinely didn't know what I was talking about or if they just don't have anything for that or well yeah and and I can explain that from this standpoint is that that path that thought path if you will is not part of their calculus because they're not trained that way and uh, I've dealt with a lot of financial advisors over the course of time uh independently as a client and also just kind of as an observer talking to them interacting with them and so forth and so they're not going. They're not going to tell you anything like that because it would steer you away from conventional investments, right? And, and, and they you, make their you money get steered, off. Exactly, and, and and that's completely understandable. So I'm not sure, casting sure. aspersions against financial advisors, but um, to your point, moving forward, as I mentioned, cash is going to be really important. So even though you may not uh, like the U.S. dollar because it has these defects about it, uh, there will come a time, probably not in the too distant future, where cash is going to be incredibly important. Now. What happens after that is going to be really, really interesting, and that's where it would be nice to have a crystal ball because if you do have this kind of tremendous loss of confidence in fiat currencies, well, when things like that have happened before, let's say in other countries, you may just see uh, zeros added to the end of, of a piece of paper, sometimes like they did in India here not too long ago. They said, okay, well, bring us your old money and we'll just give you some new money. <laughs> Um, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's done to uh, supposedly to, um, combat the war on, you know, fill in the blank. Um, so what's interesting and what could happen is after that loss of confidence. So I I think this is just Jim's crystal ball. Cash is going to be very, very important going into the next recession slash depressionary period because values of financial assets where a lot of the credit has been funneled into, and I'll just use, you know, real estate, stocks, bonds, uh, other types of investment like that, where a lot of the, you know, the money has flowed, that will, those values will then rationalize back to lower levels. When that happens, there's a rush for the exits. You know, people are trying to sell things to, to raise cash. So what becomes really important at that point in time? Cash. Then you'll be able to buy things for you know, pennies on the dollar from, compared to today. You know, maybe maybe Amazon stock, instead of being worth $1,000, maybe it's worth $100, right? And so now you think, wow, you know, I can pick up Amazon for $100. Um, what happens after that is I think is going to be really, really interesting because if there is a true, true loss in confidence in the currency units, then the authorities have to respond in, in several ways. Well, one way is obviously is to tie it to something more tangible like we had in our past, which is some precious metal, whether that's gold, silver, or yeah, some combination yeah. of the two. That's one. Another is uh, there, there, there's kind of a another kind of more I'll call it a more of a hypothetical situation where the IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund, you know, they get involved. And I'm actually kind of giving away a little bit, <laughs> a little bit of my plot. To I won't tell book. anybody. I will not tell anybody. <laughs> but, which is the kind of plot of the first book, which is, you know, you have this supranational organization. So this international organization that has a clean balance sheet. Well, you know, at this point, 
let's just go forward and you, let's say you have a little bit more about that, that loss of confidence. Well, the banks aren't going to have clean balance sheets. The Federal Reserve or other central banks, they don't have clean balance sheets now. So you have to go to, well, who has a clean balance sheet at that point? Well, there's this organization called the IMF, International Monetary Fund, that they literally can create currency units out of nothing. And so there's a thought process that I have that maybe they get involved and they try to recapitalize, uh, try to create some associations with, uh, and, and, and actually they, they exist today. They're called special drawing rights or SDRs. Um, and this probably get a little bit too esoteric for this conversation. Yeah, but <laughs> You're almost there, losing there, me right actually, now. <laughs> there's actually a plot in my first book, Daniel, where I talk about an international organization, again, getting involved because of a loss of confidence and so forth. And, and so I call it the Global Settlement Bank. That's just the name of, of the organization in my book. And they get involved. And so they've got to, you know, they've got to help out the United States and other countries and so forth. So that's kind of like the next stage after that, that loss of confidence where, you know, people are going to realize, hey, we need to have more confidence in this thing that, that I'm using to trade for goods and services called money. What is that solution going to be? And so there's a couple op options there. Okay. So, I mean, obviously I, I don't, I don't hope for a collapse, but um, there, there is, there is certainly, the, it, it's, it's a possibility in the back of my mind, um, probably more real than, than most might consider it to be. Yeah, and, and when I say when I say collapse, I I, I want to be clear for for your listeners. I don't necessarily mean that you know this is like Mel Gibson and you know people are you know driving along you know old lake beds and water scarce. That's not what I mean at all. I'm I'm talking strictly in the financial realm right, where right, as far as the there's, yeah, there's a crisis of some sort that occurs, and the authorities have to respond in or, some or way, we, or we have to figure out some other way to exchange value amongst one another. Correct. Okay. Yeah, that, that's what I'm. That's what I'm referring to as well. I appreciate the uh, clarification. Um, but what I'm what I'm looking at right now is I'm I'm doing a couple things uh, right now. I'll tell you what those are, and then I'd like to ask you kind of if you think those are good ideas, and maybe if there's something else that we can look at uh, as a possible hedge. Um, there's a couple of things what I'm doing is I'm taking a small amount of money from my paycheck each week, and I'm buying I'm buying gold with it. Um, that's, that's one thing I, I have a small withdrawal that comes from my direct deposit into, uh, this website that I can buy gold from that holds it in store. Um, another thing I'm doing is I'm actually taking another small amount of money and I'm purchasing Bitcoin right now, which, um, has seen a, an incredible increase. I don't know if you follow that at all. Um, I, I do, but that that's another that's another thing that I'm doing is I'm taking just a little bit. I'm not I'm not you know freaking out or nothing like that, but I'm at least putting some money in there to because I know if if the U.S. dollar decreases in value or loses its value, that I know Bitcoin and and other digital currencies like that are going to suddenly become very very valuable to people. Um, what do you what do you think about those as possible hedges? Yeah, so let's take the first one, uh, gold. Uh, gold, as as we talked about earlier, I would have definitely have a place in the future, particularly if there's going to be some sort of a relationship uh, associated with with the U.S. dollar or any other currency unit. And, and as a matter of fact, that that did exist in the past. So it's not. Some people think. Um, some people cast aspersions against what they consider are gold bugs. They think, well, it's. You know, that's a relic of the past and it doesn't really have any use and so forth. Well, <laughs> it, was, it does. It was used because, for thousands of years. <laughs> it was used for thousands of years. And even though you'll hear economists right now throw daggers at gold, um, the one thing that nobody likes to talk about is that central banks are, you know, the largest hoarders of gold in, in the world. And, and, and again, there's a reason for that. So gold would have, gold has always been money. 
It, it never, it's, it's never not been. Okay. Um, in the future, if there's an association where you want to, when, when you want to create uh, a better sense of wealth for the currency unit, gold, silver would be vehicle A for doing that. Now, the issue with gold is, and I'll just say this from a dollar perspective, because again, I don't, I, I'm not in the camp that believes that the dollar is going to go to oblivion anytime soon. Okay. The dollar's going to, the, the dollar's still going to exist, and and the dollar's still going to have some worth for a while. So when you buy gold right now, and gold is what, 12, $12.50 or something like that an ounce right now. So you have to take 1250 cash dollars to buy that. Uh, in a recessionary, deflationary environment, the price of the dollar price of gold is going to go down. Okay. So, and, and, and we saw this before. Uh, and, and in fact, gold had its peak in 2011, 1900 and so dollars, and it's at $1,200 now. So, so just look at that delta between 1900 and where we are right now. That's a pretty significant drop. Um, and in that time, people would say, well, having things, you know, politically uh, more unstable, the dollars. Yeah, but look, look what happened to gold. So the, the point is, is that gold will behave um, like a financial asset from the standpoint of dollar pricing. So I do believe that during the next recession, depressionary period, the price of gold will go down. Now, after that uh, is a different story. Um, with Bitcoin, uh, I, I wrote about Bitcoin in uh, my my books, uh, I, I kind of reprised Bitcoin and the whole cryptocurrency theme in in my latest book that I released. And what I want to say about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is they, they do serve a great purpose right now from the standpoint of being able to transfer money anywhere privately. You do that outside the banking system. Uh, it's not subject to the whims of central banks. Um, it has a lot of similar properties that you would want in a currency and that, again, it can't be created out of thin air. It has to be mined, of course, electronically. The downside of what I see to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is that you don't really have possession of that. It's, it's, in an, it's an electronic cyberspace, much like most of our money, regular money is right now. So from the equivalent standpoint of like the, the, the monetary base of of what you see in the United States, well, a lot of that is not in paper dollars or coins. It's out in cyberspace somewhere. With Bitcoin, uh, there have been, obviously, as you know, hacks on Bitcoin exchanges. Uh, there have been other cases of theft. You don't really have possession of it. And probably the worst thing that I see with Bitcoin right now is it's unfortunately falling into the same trap from an investor standpoint. Uh, where it's being chased by a lot of hot money, so it's it's in its own <laughs> yeah. little bubble right now. And and as a, as a matter of fact, if you look at some of the price fluctuations in Bitcoin, they've been very very violent. And uh, some of the people that I've talked to about Bitcoin, yeah, if you got involved in Bitcoin a long long time ago, you're probably sitting real pretty right now. But uh, I suspect that a lot of the and especially lately, you, when, you, when I look at Bitcoin charts, and I've studied a lot of charts of things in my in my time, it looks, you know, it, it kind of has that kind of that exponential hyperbolic uh, curve like to it. And just the just the fervor that I see with Bitcoin right now tells me that it's also being it's also been swept up in this bubble of financial assets. Now, that doesn't mean that Bitcoin's going to go away and, and it, it loses any of its functionality. What I'm saying is, is that the dollar value of Bitcoin right now uh, probably won't be the same in the future. Yeah, what I have I have noticed with Bitcoin is the, the value does continue to go up uh, generally. 
um, it does, like you said, it is, is very volatile in, in certain times. But what I'm noticing is that I'm having a hard time, uh, reframing it in my mind as, as I don't, I don't, I want to be careful not to fall into the trap of looking at it as an investment vehicle where I put in money and I make money because of the, the growth in it. Um, so, well, and, that, and, see, that and that's real difficult. That, and that's the, pro- yeah. And that's the problem, Daniel, is that, uh, what I, t- what I talk about in my books is that treat Bitcoin as money, you know, it, and it, but the problem right now is it's, it's being thought of as an investment and because it's being thought of an investment, there's all of this hot money going into it. And again, because of the general overall bubble climate that we're in, and, and I say that about stocks, uh, real estate, especially in, in some areas, Canada is, is really just flashing red lights right now. And then, you know, bonds that have been in a bubble for a long, long time, uh, not just in the United States, but if you look at some of these uh, countries in Europe, like Italian bonds have these super low interest rates that are just mind boggling. And um, especially if you knew what, what sort of financial shape that country and, and the banking system there is in. But so, so that's kind of what I see with Bitcoin is it's still going to be useful. There's going to be a, other, a bunch of other cryptocurrencies that are there now and, and will be there in the future that, will, that, that I think and I hope will compete alongside other currencies like the maybe US gold dollar. coins, dollars, et cetera. I mean, <laughs> you, it, you, would, it would, you would hope so. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you want to have that sort of competitive um, climate, if you will, <laughs> In, in currency, just like anything else. Now, to make sure I understand this correctly, what I what I've heard is that if you have you, you do not have a truly free market until you have competing currencies, and right now with the U.S. dollar kind of being the number one currency that people deal in for the most part in the United States, and matter of fact, it's illegal for us to create a competing currency, uh, another paper money kind of currency. Um, I don't think we'll truly see a free market, open free market until something like that happens or, or until it's, I, I guess that, uh, uh, what's, what's the phrase I'm looking for here? Um, it's gotten a little too big for its britches. And, uh, I think once it comes down to, a, uh, I guess, uh, I, I'm having a hard, try, hard time trying to figure out how to word this exactly. Cause I'm not hip to the lingo, but I guess basically once it inflates to a certain point and then maybe returns back to normalcy uh, maybe we'll yeah, start to but, see some more competing currencies actually uh, compete I mean, with it yeah if you go back in time i mean you used to have banks that issued banknotes and uh, there was banknote from bank a b c and so forth and those freely traded about if you went back even further than that during the time of the colonies uh the colonists use like spanish uh milled dollars uh, because and i and i assume that that played alongside you know some of the english currency that existed so all of these all of these competing currencies have existed over the course of time i mean they had some real intrinsic value uh, i i do think that you'll see this i mean the, the, the genie's out of the bottle. So right now, cryptocurrencies exist. They're, they're going to exist. They, they, they check off a lot of boxes for me personally. There's some that they don't, it, it doesn't check off. Um, but the best thing would be for the world, the economies to embrace multiple currencies that people trust, you know, have confidence in, and uh, they can compete against one another. Uh, because you know, the monopoly that fiat currencies have had right now has causes a lot of ills. And, and again, I, I detail those in to a, to a great degree in the books. And, and markets actually go through natural recessions and declines and then corrections and things like that. And do you, do you think if, if that were to happen, if, if people were to, to be able to have access to competing currencies, the, the, maybe the recessions won't be so volatile as we saw back in 2007 through nine? 
Yeah, you hit it right on the head is that because we have these defective currency units, it exacerbates the effect of these business cycles that we have. So we're, we're always going to have these business cycles. You know, we're going to have highs and lows in the market. And, and part of that, which I also detail in the book, is how humans are wired. And so it, if, you, if you take that as fact that human, unless we all become Mr. Spock and we all become very rational, logical beings, <laughs> until, and, until and, I, and, I, and I actually have a picture of Mr. Spock in one of the books, you know, that said, You're, you don't think like him, you know, and that's the, that's the issue. Because you don't think like him, we we go through these ebbs and flows economically. The problem is, is that when you have defective currency that you use, it exacerbates the, you know, that, that wave, if you will. Well, and it also covers up all the market signals that companies need to see to be able to determine whether or not they need to start investing in more capital or if they need to start, you know, saving their pennies for the next, you know, because there's an an upcoming recession or, you know, there's a lot of market signals that are lost in a fiat currency system that that's exactly really right. help people out to know what to do. And I think people would be able to get into businesses a lot easier and be able to start up, you know, they, they would feel a lot more conf- confident and comfortable doing it and taking the risk. But right now you don't know. It's like you're trying to do it with a mask on the whole time. You have no idea if you're making a, de- a good decision or not. That's exactly right. So, um, well, uh, that, that's, uh, that's all the questions I had for you at the moment. If there's any other topics you wanted to touch on, um, I would be uh, super excited to have you back again. Uh, this was fantastic, uh, and I think I think it gives people a number of things to chew on without getting too overly technical. Um, and uh, I, I guess that's about all I got there. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate you having me on. It's been you know a really nice, free flowing discussion. Uh, definitely would like to be you know back on with you and your and your partner. Uh, there's there's a I just think there's a lot of things to that that really need what I consider more rational discussion. And, and it's really it's really disappointing to me when I turn on the news and, and obviously you know we have this political discord, which is fine. I mean I'm I'm not against political discord, but I, I just really have a hard time finding. Uh, a network or a news show that is, let's say, let's say more centered. Um, and, and I talk about this in my, my latest book is called Escaping Oz and Observer's Reflections. And it's just me, you know, looking out and making commentary on, on a number of topics, um, because these are things that need to be talked about. I mean, I, I talk about healthcare in, in this new book and the, the book, I, I, I want to encourage readers to take a look at it because it's written in short article format and you don't even have to read it you know, from start to finish in, in a particular order. I mean, you can hop around and if you just want to read this topic, okay. But it, but it allows people to have a starting point for rational discussion because what we're having right now is not rational discussion. And, 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 it, and we're, we're coming to a point in time, I think economically, where the stresses are going to be much higher. And what's really, what really should disturb people, uh, particularly those maybe that are listening to this show, is that right now, look at the political discord that we have. And if you look at, from an economic perspective, you've got near record low unemployment, you've got a stock market at record highs, you've got interest rates near record lows, uh, a housing market that in many respects has recovered, it's not totally recovered. So there's a lot of economic measures that if you just look at them, they're pretty good, right? Yeah, I, I mean, and, the housing market, and, and maybe, like you said, is yeah, and, is booming right yeah, here and, in the Nashville area. <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe it's and maybe it's a false sense of security, and that's okay. But my point is, is that if you just look at some statistical measures, uh, usually you see this sort of political discord when statistical measures of the economy aren't as healthy, right? And I and I talked about that in you know 2009, what happened? You had the Tea Party, and then a little bit after that, you had Occupy. Well, 
you know, we just came off a bruising 2016 election. It's, and it's almost like we're still in the middle of an election right now. Mm-hmm. And yet all of these things, all these statistical measures that I mentioned are in, are very much in, in, in positive territory. What's going to happen when these statistical measures, and they've already started to turn down, when they start to turn down and, and you hit that trough again, like you did in 2008, what do you think the political discussion is going to be like then? Uh, you know what? Right now, it seems like the re- uh, one of the main reasons people are so divided right now is because they're constantly being kind of fed this narrative that uh, the other guy is your enemy. <laughs> it's That's it's, right. it's like go- right. governments over here going. Don't look at what we're doing. Um, the, the other guy, look at him. He's the one that's giving you all these troubles. If it wasn't for him, then you guys would be in perfect shape. And, but, and they're kind of sick in the left and the right off, upon each other. <laughs> exactly. And, and, I, and I talk about that in my latest book, and I call it warfare sociology. And, and so it, it's, it, it's a way to split A against B. But what but what's going to have to happen is at the next trough, if you continue to with to create that chasm, it's going to make the resolutions of the problems that much harder. And until you again, the, the reason I wrote this last book, this nonfiction book, is to just have a starting point for people to have a dis, a discussion, a rational discussion. And I and I throw some humor in there too to kind of you know inject some levity. But we don't ha- we don't have that political middle right now that we desperately need in order again to have rational discussions about how to deal with the problems moving forward. All right, Jim, I sure appreciate having you on, and I will make sure to link those uh, books down in the low bar here. Um, is there any kind of place people can reach you if they want to uh, like hit you up on social media or email? Yeah, I would say the best place uh, is to come to my author site, which is www.jimmoscara.com, and that's J-I-M-M-O-S-Q-U-E-R-A.com. Uh, that's a good central place to look at all the books and then it's got you know connections to social media and, and so forth. Okay, well, I'll be sure to send people there, but I, I've, I've officially lost all respect for you because you had to say WWW. So <laughs> basically this whole conversation has been a waste of everybody's time. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Just, just don't let it happen again, okay? <laughs> I won't, I won't. Wow, was that not the best ideagasm you've ever had? Want to do it again? Go to unframeofmind.com to find more mind-stretching, world-altering podcasts, videos, and articles, and get those critical thinking juices flowing.